was wonderful as always, Charlotte. Um, uh, so I'm not a woman. You, you might you might have noticed if you know, if you know me. Got some strong feminine uh, character traits. I know, but I'm not. I'm not a woman, but uh, the point of me uh, doing what I'm going to do this morning is just to link us back into the Exile series because we've been, we've had Easter and everything um, in between, just to kind of get some of that stuff fresh in our mind. Now, um, you know by now that we're going to be taking a look at the beautiful Jewish party girl. And we don't have... Oh, there we go. So, okay. So the beautiful Jewish party girl was a joke. That's not going to show up. I had a picture of Kate Fisher up there. (laughs) And um, I felt really old. There we go. There she is. I felt really old when I gave it to Tilly because she's like, is it the the PowerPoint with the two women? They were like the most (laughs) um, sort of famous socialites uh, in Australia I thought they still were. Um, Elle McPherson and Kate Fisher. And I know that some of you are thinking, well, she doesn't look like that anymore. Shame on you. The only reason that you know that Kate Fisher, she now, she's, I think she's converted back to, or she's sort of taken her Judaism on. A bit. So she was famous, you know, she partied with the, with the sort of champagne scene in Australia. Uh, and she's changed her name to something very Jewish like Zipporah or something, and she's recently been in trashy magazines and trashy TV. So if you also knew that, we're revoking your membership uh, this morning. Uh, So there you go, you're laughing. Uh, Yeah, some of you are laughing awkwardly because you don't know what I'm talking about. Those who aren't laughing awkwardly, your membership is being revoked. Uh, I was actually speaking of trashy magazines. uh, I got uh, pretty sick, I think, the week before last, and I ended up in emergency at the RBH. And this great, I mean, it's always full of, of drama, uh, the, the hospital. But the, the other two people who were, were there sort of waiting were a, a woman maybe in her 50s and her daughter who looked like she was in her 20s. And I ended up finding out that they were there because the mother was, was checking herself into, into rehab and she, she looked like she'd had a hard time of it. It was quite beautiful to watch the way that she and her daughter related to one another. Her daughter had obviously taken the morning off work to help her mum, you know, um, make a decision uh, that would hopefully be positive in her life. But they were reading uh, the new idea or whatever, whatever trashy magazine uh, was there. And I always, you know, eschew those things because I'm a person of substance and a Christian and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Uh, and, and I could overhear the kind of conversation. So the mother would say, oh, I've always liked how this person's worn her hair and, oh, doesn't she look fabulous? And, and then she said, um, look at this. So this is the mother. Look at this. Some people are getting nasal hair extensions. And the, and the daughter sort of probably thinking, oh, mum, sort of said, oh, mum. Uh, and I was thinking... I hope they go in before me so I can get that magazine and find out <laughs> all about nasal hair extensions. I still, it's still a bit of a mystery. Why someone would want that, I don't know. But I can see how it sell a magazine because the question looms large in my imagination. Why would someone get nasal hair extensions? But no, we're not talking about uh, 
Kate Fisher, and I'm not going to preach from New Idea. Uh, we are going to go to the book of Esther. And um, basically, the book of Esther is, is a story of God's providential preservation of his people as they are in exile. So we've been doing this exile series. They're an exile community in the book of Esther, the Jews, in, in the Persian Empire. And I've got a map there. So um, you can see a date there, the 6th century. Esther's actually happening in the 5th, but I do have a laser pointer. And the setting for it is like there, Susa. Um, <clears throat> and it sort of takes place just about a generation before the events that we read in Scripture of Ezra and Nehemiah and the Babylonian exiles actually going back to the Promised Land. So there's this big story of, of, of the Jews, of Israel, being carried away from the Promised Land into these foreign lands where they are subject to the rule of foreign empires. Esther is, is happening in that scene. So in Persia, a Jewish community living in a hostile land. And um, uh, there's a sort of pretty basic good versus evil thing going on uh, in the book of Esther. There's this king, Xerxes, uh, who was described by some commentators as a kind of foil for God. And what I mean by that is uh, the scripture often sets up emperors and kings as a kind of false god. Because lots of ways emperors and kings are false gods. If we put all of our trust in emperors and kings, well, we're not putting out all of our trust in God. And emperors and kings can sort of presume to be like gods in our midst. In the ancient world, they often flat out said, I'm God, or acted as God. And you can find little uh, sort of hints of this in Scripture if you look. Don't read this whole verse, um, but the author of Esther, who's anonymous, sort of tips their hat to this idea by talking about the vast wealth of Xerxes' kingdom and, and goes on to sort of describe some of the, the lavish nature of, of the way that he was king. So um, we read that Xerxes is, is a party boy, basically. Uh, he's kind of arrogant. He's kind of flippant and shallow in some of his judgments. And he's kind of like not doing a very good job of trying to be God, of being God, if that's what he's doing. The next character uh, that we uh, will read about as we engage with the book of Esther is this person called Haman, who is kind of like Xerxes' right-hand man. And he is really the villain of the story. Uh, he's the villain of the story because we find out that he hates the Jews and he basically wants to annihilate the Jews. The third significant character in Esther is a Jew called Mordecai and then the fourth is his equally wise and also beautiful cousin Esther from whom the book gets its name. And we read, and I think we probably all know by now, that Esther actually ends up as queen of the Persian Empire in this story. So the story basically begins as a kind of domestic dispute on turbocharge. Uh, it tells the story of Xerxes throwing this crazy party. Again, 
don't get too bogged down in the text on the screen. It's just to prove to you that this is actually coming from Scripture because I'm going to kind of uh, paraphrase a bit as we go through. He throws this crazy party at the end of which is seven days of straight drinking. And in the midst of this seven days of straight drinking, he thinks it would be a good idea to request his wife to dress up really nice and come out and sort of show her beauty off to his mates, everyone at the party. Not surprisingly, uh, perhaps his wife wasn't quite so keen on the idea, and so she says no. And you can see there in the yellow text at the bottom that that made the king really mad. It says he burned with anger. Um, So Xerxes, and this uh, speaks to his kind of impetuous nature, he decides that she's not going to be queen anymore, and so he's going to have to find a replacement queen. Um, But he also makes an edict that must go out throughout the realm uh, that all women in the empire will respect their husbands. Now, here's a hot tip. (laughs) If you really, really want someone to respect you, edicts don't really work. Um, And maybe this is particularly for the men in our midst. If we ever want to reach for that, you need to respect me, or parents, actually. We can do that with children. Doesn't, doesn't really work, does it? Um, and I think the author of Esther's having a little bit of a go at Xerxes by uh, mentioning that he made this ridiculous edict that all women in the realm should respect their husbands. So enter our heroine, Esther. The search for a new queen is on in Xerxes' realm. And Esther comes to the centre of the story because as a part of Xerxes finding this replacement queen, she essentially wins a beauty pageant. Um, And as a new member of Xerxes' harem, the king finds her, and I think there's significant subtext to the way this word is used throughout the book, pleasing So you can read from Esther 2.14 in there. In the evening, she would go there. In the morning, return to another part of the harem. So the the women who were kind of in this harem would go to the king uh, for a night and then return in the morning. So there's some kind of uh, dimension there that the VeggieTales version of Esther might skip over. Uh, I'm talking about sex, people. Okay, I'll spell it out. So that's going on. And and Esther becomes queen. The king finds her the most pleasing. The arrogant, drunk, pagan king Xerxes finds her the most pleasing of any of the women who are involved in this pageant become a part of his harem. Um, And so it turns out, even if it's because uh, she's just hot, basically, and, and maybe got some sort of pleasing qualities that I won't dig into too much right now, that Esther becomes positioned right at the centre of power in this pagan empire. And um, we find out as we engage with the story that there is more to Esther than her looks and her pleasing qualities for the king, but actually that she is, is, is wise and that she is brave. And One of the things that she does, if you've read the story, is she throws uh, this party when it emerges that uh, Haman 
has it in for all the Jews and he plans to wipe them out. She thinks, I've got to use the position that I have with Xerxes to try and stop this from happening, to try and save my people. So she throws this really banging party. Um, She engages all of her wisdom and her diplomacy and she ends up sort of positioning herself with Xerxes to save her people. Um, But really, she's brave because she puts her life on the line in that. And you might remember this passage from the, the book, if you've ever read it before, it comes to this point where she's talking with her cousin about their plan for her to go to the king, throw herself at his feet and say, please, you know, spare my people, where she says, when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So she's willing to die for her people. She's willing to kind of roll the dice and actually... Um, there's a holiday in, in Jewish tradition and there's a dice uh, in this story as well, though she doesn't roll it, called Purim, which means dice. There's this kind of gambling element um, to the book of, of Esther. So a holiday called Pur, which is a dice, Purim, where Jews celebrate the bravery, the diplomacy, the wisdom of Esther in doing this. <laughs> But one of the things you might pick up as you engage with the book of Esther, and and basically what I'm asking us to do is to read it. Read it in your own time. It's only 10 chapters. We're going to be in it for about a month. Is that it's not necessarily the same story that we might have inherited from a movie like One Night with the King, which came out recently, which is a kind of Hollywood version, or The Veggie Tales. Um, version of the story, there's complications with the story. And one of them is that uh, God is not mentioned at all in the book of Esther. I don't know if you've noticed that, if you've come across that. And in fact, um, the Christian church has always been a little bit uncomfortable with the book of Esther, partly for this reason. I mean, there's the sex, there's the... Um, there's the partying, but there's also this sort of pretty uh, significant fact that God's name, God, is not a character in this story. Um, To the extent that there's no Christian commentary on Esther until the 9th century. It was like Christians just kind of put it in the too hard basket. Christians were engaging with Jewish scripture, with 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 the Hebrew Bible, as we'd call it, but no one really had the guts to go, well, what could this be saying to us about God as Christians until the 9th century? And as recently as the 20th century, um, Lewis Bales Patton, who was one of the experts uh, in the last 100 years on the book of Esther and wrote a really significant commentary on it, he said this, this book is so conspicuously lacking in religion that it should never have been included in the canon of the Old Testament, but should have been left amongst the apocryphal writings. So... It's not a straightforward book. I've got a picture, actually, um, of some of the deconstructing that we might need to do in coming to this. Uh, It's often set up for us as a kind of moral fable. So be brave like Esther 
and, um, and, and be willing to risk things for God like Esther. And that's definitely there. That's definitely in the VeggieTales version. The VeggieTales version somehow overlooks some of the sex and partying and some of the other difficult dimensions of it. I, I hate to think of the effect of the kind of aesthetic dimension too, of, the, of what's made of beauty in the VeggieTales version. Because Esther, there's a picture of her on the right there. She's supposed to be a pea. Um, all the other peas in the story are round, but somehow Esther's kind of elongated, and I'm sure that wreaked all sorts of havoc with the body image of young peas who have had to uh, watch the story. But um, she's a she's a yeah. Are sweet peas long? Yeah, they are. Okay, I don't want to, that, that's a tangent I want to, don't want to go down, Zeke, but thank you. Um, anyway, all of this to say is have a, have a read of Esther. I'm really looking forward to what the preachers in the coming months do to kind of unpack this story further, but read it for yourself. And if you have to sort of, maybe you love One Night with the King, maybe you love Veggie Tales, that's okay. Maybe just kind of um, cordon those parts of your mind off, engage with the book itself critically for a while to see what God might be saying to you through the book. There is one suggestion that I want to take a little bit of time to make this morning about what it means for us to read this book. And it is to read it through the exile lens that we've been talking about. So we've been in this series where we're considering what it means to be God's faithful people in an environment that might seem ungodly, in an environment where it doesn't seem like God's people are in control. And we've used this verse as a bit of a lens um, from Jeremiah's prophecy about what goes on in the exile. Now, one of the things we haven't talked about thus far is... Jeremiah, as a prophet, witnessed um, the exiles kind of in, in, his, in his prophecies getting ripped out of Israel and Jerusalem, taken off um, to Babylon. And he sort of speaks as God's voice piece, right, uh, in regard to the fact that God's people are taken away from the promised land, the temple's destroyed, all this horrible stuff's happening. But we haven't actually talked about the fact that he wasn't the only prophet in operation at that point in time. There was another prophet working at the same time as Jeremiah, who we find out ultimately is a false prophet. And his name uh, is Hananiah. And Hananiah meets an end, if you read the book of Jeremiah, that false prophets generally meet in the Old Testament. False prophets, um, Jeremiah says, actually give voice to rebellion against God. And when we rebel against God, how do we end up? We end up dead, generally. Sin was rebellion against God, and it's sin uh, that, uh, through sin that death came into the world. Whenever we read about prophets in the Old Testament, you'll see that they generally meet a kind of untimely, unpleasant end. And that's what happens to Hananiah. Now, I want to uh, play a little bit of ex an experiment out on us this morning by just comparing the prophecies of Hananiah and Jeremiah 
just quickly to help us get back into the kind of lens of what it means to be reading Scripture as an exile. So I'm going to read uh, some of Jeremiah's prophecy, and I'm going to read some of Hananiah's prophecy. Now let's see uh, if we can pick which is which. So here's Exhibit A. This is what the Lord God Almighty, the Lord God of Israel says. So in response to God's people being carried away from their land, their temple being ransacked, all that sort of stuff. I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, removed from there and took to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the other exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Sounds pretty good, yeah? That's what you'd probably want to hear from a prophet. Here's another prophecy. So exhibit B from a different prophet. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, I will break... Whoops, I've got to click this. Started off the same way. Uh, this is what the Lord God Almighty says to all those carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And for some of us, the penny is dropping right about now, isn't it? Because we've looked at this passage, and we know that this is the prophecy of God's prophet. So the false prophet said, God's going to come in and he's going to smash Babylon. Don't even worry about it. It's not even a thing. And here the prophet of God says, actually, this is a crazy idea. But God's working in this. And he's got a task for you in this. And this is a part of God's judgment, actually. You're being carried into exile, but he can work in that. Reminds me a little bit of the language that Graham used about who we are as Christians, yeast through dough, from the bottom up. God somehow is working through circumstances that seem not to be going in the favour of God's people. What does this tell us? It's kind of confronting, really, isn't it? That there's the straightforward promise that God's just going to smash our enemies. And yet that's the words coming out of the mouth of a false prophet who ultimately dies, if you read Jeremiah chapter 8, just after he delivers this. I think it's telling us, as Christians, that sometimes this happens. Sometimes God's people are not in control. Sometimes God's people find themselves as exiles under the rule of an empire which may not be particularly well disposed to them, which may, in fact, be, to reach for biblical language, pagan, which may set itself up against God, and yet God is working there. God has a plan there. And this is maybe what that plan looks like, to seek the peace This reminds me of some language that we've used about 
the wisdom warrior. And I want to suggest this morning that Esther is a biblical type, a type that we've seen before in the book of Daniel, of somebody who lives this peace ethic out. Um, Daniel Smith Christopher, a biblical scholar that we've referenced before, he talks about this type, the wisdom warrior. A wisdom warrior is a person who wisely works for the worldly empire's good and peace, but who also has an ethic that she will stand for if the empire chooses to defy the Jewish God, Yahweh. The peace ethic of the wisdom warrior is a practice of radical doubt towards empires and kingdoms. Wisdom warriors should believe that God's ultimate work in the world comes from his people, not through empires and through nations. So Esther is this kind of compromised figure in so many ways. But it sort of makes sense in this wisdom warrior paradigm because God will call his people at times to be loyal subjects at the centre of what's going on in a pagan empire. And other times his people will have to make a stand, have to practice um, what Daniel Smith Christopher calls radical doubt. What this term radical doubt means is the ultimate tool of empire is always violence or the threat of violence. You will do what we want you to do, otherwise you will suffer, maybe die. The people that you love will suffer and die. Radical doubt in the face of that kind of violence, in the face of how empires work in that way, says, sure, I've got a priority that is greater than whether I live or die. Esther had that priority, didn't she? It was her people. She said, actually, it's worth it. If I die, at least I die trying to save my people. As Christians, if we take the path of the wisdom warrior, we say, okay, have it your way. I might die, but I don't fear death. And I have an ultimate purpose that goes beyond whether I live or die and that's where the God's work and will is done in the world and we know ultimately that is the salvation of all people of his people again so Esther is a wisdom warrior because she's working in the middle of a system of the Persian Empire with all its challenge and compromise and only this peace ethic of the wisdom warrior allows people of conviction to be able to do that to be able to say, this is a difficult situation, but I'm going to try and walk that line. I'm I'm going to try and be the wisdom warrior in this place. When people show they have priorities above self-preservation, they radically doubt the empire, and that's what Esther does. And I believe that this is the seed of value that we can find in Esther as Christians, because that's what we're called to do. So the Preachers that come, I think, will in part explore that for us. There are, we're going to come to the table in a minute. Um, There are many lessons, I think, that we can learn as Christians from Esther, and I think we'll go deeper into that stuff and hopefully bring some stuff out of that. Uh, How we can be the wisdom warrior, what it looks like to be the wisdom warrior. But I think one of the favours that Esther can actually do 
for us as Christians is in her imperfection, is in her compromise, because it points us to our own compromise, actually. She isn't able to perfectly execute what it means to be a righteous Jew in a, in a, in a, in a foreign con- context to some degree, because of the sex, because of the partying, all of that kind of stuff. She's not a typical pin-up girl. And the implication is that there's sin there. She's, she's imperfect, but God still used her somehow. And so the story, in a sense, isn't so much about how to be a hero, though I think you know, maybe there'll be some of that in here for us, but it's about the faithfulness of God. And when we think about the faithfulness of God, we think about our fallenness. I think Esther, as a story, helps to point us to another wisdom warrior that we find in Scripture. And this is a wisdom warrior who, like Esther, was willing to pay the ultimate price to save his people. Who, like Esther, much to the frustration of his countrymen, saw the evil of a foreign empire that was leaning in on him and yet refused to respond to its violence with more violence. Unlike Esther, though, this wisdom warrior that I believe this book will point us to did not sin, did not compromise God's pure character, his nature, could I get the band up? We're going to come around the, the table this morning. I'm going to move this out of the way. It's good news that God can work through imperfect people. good news for me because I know that I'm imperfect and I know that living out my faith in this world is always compromising right I feel so often like I'm having to make um, a decision between one less than ideal situation and another one imperfect party and leader and another The, the challenge of that is that, that it does mean that I'm not up to scratch with God. Though he invites me into divine community, though he loves me, I'm disqualified in so many ways. I know that I've got so much junk that I'll bring into that divine communion, that divine life that the Godhead shares. But the thing about the wisdom warrior, Jesus, is that he was perfect. And what we're going to sort of confront again as we come around the table 
is that because he was perfect, we don't have to be. We will make mistakes, we'll sin. Like Esther, we'll be put in compromising situations. But as long as we, like Esther, put our hand up and say, God, use me. I see that you're wanting to do a saving work here. I'm willing to put my life on the line. I'm willing to give my life over to that cause. And we are the inheritors of Jesus' perfection. This was produced by Cornerstone Christian Resources. It is deemed copyright and may be used by permission. For further information about Cornerstone Christian Resources, please visit the Cornerstone website at www.homecommunityworld.com.au Cornerstone meets at 81.